Bienvenue bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Sunday in the Park with George. They say that George has another woman. I'm not surprised. They say that George only lives with tramps. I'm not surprised. They say he prowls through the streets in his top hat after midnight. No, instead they're staring up at the lamps. I'm not surprised. Artists are so crazy. Those girls are noisy. Yes, madame. That man is famous. Yes, madame. That man is filthy. Your son seems to find him interesting. That man's deluded. Artists are so crazy. Artists are so peculiar. Snouching. Overprivileged women complaining. Silly little simpering shop girls. Condescending artists observing. Perceiving. Well, screw them. Artists are so crazy. But first, how are we doing? I hope this, the 100th episode of The Musical Man, finds you well. Yes, that's right. This is our 100th episode. We have talked about 99 musicals, and this week we are talking about our 100th musical. And I just have to take this time to thank Patty and Benny, of course, for their constant support, their their unwavering support. And I should also take this time to say how much I love my husband, Chris, who has also been an amazing pillar of strength throughout this entire process. I don't know if you out there in podcast land have any experience putting together a podcast week in and week out, but it is very, very difficult to stay motivated, especially during this past year, which has been so difficult for everyone. And Chris has been right there by my side, offering encouragement, love, and support every single step of the way. So thank you so much, Chris. I love you very much. And here is to another 100 episodes. We still have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. We are determined to see our audience grow. So please, if you haven't already written a five-star review via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please do so today. Tell your friends about the show, write about the show online, and become a patron. Now, speaking of Chris, he pointed out to me that Garrett Morris of Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death. He was a cast member in that show. He was also in the original cast of Saturday Night Live. Chris pointed this out to me. Thank you very much, Chris. You may also know Garrett Morris from Car Wash, the Jamie Foxx show, to Broke Girls, and or Martin. He has a ton of credits. I was inspired. Okay, this is the last thing I want to say in this opening segment before we start talking about our 100th musical. I was inspired by the following lyrics from this week's musical, quote, Anything you do, let it come from you. Then it will be new. Give us more to see. Quote. And in that spirit, I have decided to share a song, a musical theater song, my friend Lindsay and I have been working on over the last few weeks. It is called Joey Doesn't Eat Here Anymore, and you will be able to hear that song after this week's outro theme. Okay, so stick around. Every now and then we have little treats and bobble 
rolls at the end of the show after the outro theme, but this treat is especially sweet. But let us close out this opening segment and move into the show facts regarding this week's subject, Sunday in the Park with George. Show me the show facts. All right, okay, I will. The basis for this week's subject is a Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte, a painting by Georges Seurat. If the name of the painting doesn't ring a bell, I would encourage you to look it up online. Give yourself the gift of a visual reference. Sunday afternoon has been featured and satirized in several pieces of pop culture, from Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Sesame Street to Playboy and Looney Tunes back in action. The piece, measuring 7 by 10 feet and consisting of millions of dots of paint, captures a languid moment on the Seine River, one in which middle-class Parisians do their best to breathe easy and forget about their cares. Seurat visited La Grande Jatte several times and produced nearly 60 sketches as a reference for what would become his most famous work. Completing Sunday Afternoon took two years. From May 1884 through March 1885, Seurat applied tiny, horizontal brushstrokes to build out the piece. After a break of several months, he set to work again in October 1885, using dots of uniform size to fill out the rest of his scene. Seurat was fascinated by scientific theories regarding color and light, especially those of Michel-Eugène Chevreul and Ogden Rude, and it was the artist's goal to portray light and its effect on color as accurately as possible. Though Sunday Afternoon is commonly referred to as a work of pointillism, Seurat described it as a work of divisionism, a style that seeks to produce a sense of luminance and shape via concentrated patches of color. Seurat also described his technique as chromoluminarism. Upon its completion in May 1886, Sunday Afternoon was included as part of the eighth and final Impressionist exhibit, which was held later that same month. The Impressionist era of painting, which began in the 1870s, is characterized by small, thin brushstrokes, an accurate depiction of light as it relates to the passage of time, ordinary subject matter, the depiction of movement, and unusual visual angles. Examples of Impressionist works include Edward Manet's The Plum, Edgar Degas' Dancer with a Bouquet of Flowers, Star of the Ballet, and Claude Monet's Le Grand Canal. French art critic Felix Fenian declared that with the creation of Sunday Afternoon, Seurat had kick-started a new era, Neo-Impressionism. Followers of Neo-Impressionism, which is often viewed as the art world's first avant-garde movement, were driven to establish harmony between several conflicting entities. These include anarchism, a philosophy which called for the abolition of the state, academic art, which sought to synthesize the neo-classic and romantic styles, and science, which Neo-Impressionists continued to reference when recreating color and light. Neo-Impressionism was not a rejection of Impressionism. Its mission was to further refine Impressionist techniques, using dots and blocks of color to instill a sense of organization and permanence. Other examples of Neo-Impressionism include Georges Lemon's The Beach at Heist and Jean Metzinger's Femme au Chapeau. Critics were generally unimpressed by Sunday Afternoon. Seurat had hoped to invoke Egyptian hieroglyphics with the figures, the people in his painting, as well as Greek and Phoenician art, but detractors compared his subjects to toy soldiers. The piece was described as cold and methodical. Boo! Stop trying to make fetch happen, Seurat. 
In August 1886, the painting was exhibited at the second gathering of the Société des Artistes Independents, an organization Seurat had founded a few years prior. In 1889, he returned to the piece, adding a border of red, orange, and blue dots before placing it in a bright white wooden frame. Two years later, Seurat died at the age of 31 as a result of an undiagnosed disease. Frederick Clay Bartlett purchased Sunday Afternoon in 1924 before loaning it indefinitely to the Art Institute of Chicago, where it resides to this day. It was here Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine happened upon the piece in the 1980s. Their latest Broadway venture, Merrily We Roll Along, had proven to be a critical and financial disaster, and Sondheim was seriously considering leaving theater altogether. But he and Lapine were intrigued by Seurat's painting. They returned to it over the course of several days, observing the reactions of others while discussing its qualities. Why is no one in the painting looking at anyone else? What is the meaning behind certain objects and poses? And why had Seurat chosen to exclude himself Self from the tableau. These questions informed the text and themes of Sunday in the Park with George. Sunday first premiered off-Broadway in 1983, where it ran for 25 performances at Playwrights Horizons. The work was presented as a one-act for most of its initial run, with the second act only appearing in time for the final three performances. The off-Broadway cast included Kelsey Grammer, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, and Christine Baranski, though none of them would go on to be a part of the Broadway production. Baranski played Blair, which seems like perfect casting. We'll talk about Blair. I am a big fan of Blair, but now it is time for the traditional show facts. Enough set up, let's get those juicy show facts. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Sunday in the Park with George was a 1984 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on May 2nd, 1984 at the Booth Theater and ran for 604 performances. The book was written by James Lapine. The music and lyrics were written by Stephen Sondheim. The director, James Lapine. The musical director, our old friend Paul Gemignani. Hello, no choreography but the scenic design was by Tony Strages, and the lighting design was by Richard Nelson. As always, I do apologize for mispronouncing any first or last names. Sunday was the first Broadway show to include projection mapping as part of its production design, which I believe can be attributed to lighting designer Richard Nelson. Sound design, Tom Morse. Costume design, Patricia Ziprot and Anne Hould Ward. The original Broadway cast, I believe this is everyone. We have Mandy Patinkin, Bernadette Peter, who also played the witch in Into the Woods a few years later. I'm going to be noting some overlap here with the Into the Woods production just for fun. We have Barbara Brin, who played Jack's mother in Into the Woods, Dana Ivey, Charles Kimbrough, who played Jim in Murphy Brown, as well as Victor the Gargoyle in Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame. We have Mary Darcy, Danielle Furland, who played Little Red Riding Hood in Into the Woods. I will say Furland is first rate in Into the Woods, but her performance in Sunday leaves a lot to be desired. I figured I would say this now. Get it over with. Every line is infused with a ridiculous amount of cheek, and I especially dislike how she turns to face the audience before delivering certain punchlines. This is not a school play, Danielle, and you are not Shirley Temple. Let's rein it in, shall we? Let's also get the rest of this cast. Sue Ann Gershenson, Chris Cronendahl, John Jellison, Kurt Knudsen, Judith Moore, Broadway debut for Judith. Congratulations. We we have Nancy Opal, William Perry, 
Michelle Regan, Brent Spiner, Melanie Vaughn, and finally, last but not least, we have Robert Westenberg, who you may know as the Wolf and Cinderella's Prince in the original production of Yes, Into the Woods. Tony nods, Sunday in the Park with George won the Tony Award for Best Scenic Design, Tony Strages, and Best Lighting Design, Richard Nelson. It was additionally nominated for Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, James Lapine, Best Original Score, Stephen Sondheim, Best Actor in a Musical, Mandy Patinkin, Best Actress in a Musical, Bernadette Peters, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Dana Ivey, Best Costume Design, Patricia Sibrat and Anne Hould Ward, and finally, Best Direction of a Musical, James Lapine. So, 10 nominations, two awards at the end of the day. Only 10 musicals have managed to win the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, a group that includes Sunday in the Park with George. The other nine winners, A Chorus Line, Fiorello, Hamilton, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Next to Normal of The I Sing, Rent, South Pacific, and A Strange Loop. Now, when it comes to the plot, I should note that while Sunday is ostensibly about Georges Seurat, it is a highly fictionalized take on a life historians know very little about. I feel no need to point out the discrepancies, as accuracy was never the mission. It was never the point. Now, to the plot. Paris, 1884. Artist Georges Seurat, here referred to as George, has traveled to a park on the island of La Grande Jatte with his lover, Dot. Here on the Seine, George aims to sketch Dot in the early morning light so she may be included in a new painting. Dot does her best to remain still, but the heat and the noise of their countrymen makes the job difficult. George takes note of a particular group of rabble-rousers who served as the inspiration for an earlier painting, Bathers at Enseigne. We transition to a gallery where Bathers is being exhibited. George's peer, Jules, sneers at the piece along with his wife, Yvonne. We return to the park as Dot is released from her position as model. George agrees to take her to the Follies that evening, and she leaves feeling pleased. George approaches an old woman who is resting with her nurse. The woman, as it turns out, is his mother, and when he asks her to model for him, she refuses. George sets to work at his studio as Dot prepares for their night at the Follies. It is clear they care for each other deeply, but when George breaks their date to continue painting, Dot is left feeling heartbroken and resentful. George returns to La Grande Jatte to sketch other residents of the park, including a surly boatman, lusty French soldiers, and a pair of excitable dogs. Jules confronts George, dismissing his subjects as common and vulgar. In return, George invites Jules to the studio for a peek at his latest work. Dot visits the park with Louis, a baker whom she does not love but is clearly devoted to her. Before she can speak with George, he manages to slip away into the crowd. Later, George admits his love of painting has isolated him from the rest of the world. Sometime later, Dot pays George a visit at the studio. She is pregnant, and while George is obviously the child's father, he demonstrates little interest in repairing their relationship. Dot once posed for George while seated at her vanity, and though he had promised to give her the resulting portrait, it is now clear he will never follow through. Jules and Vaughn interrupt their conversation so the former may look upon Sunday afternoon. While the men converse, Dot and Yvonne connect over their shared attraction to and frustration with artists. Predictably, Jules is not a fan of Sunday Afternoon and refuses to support the piece when it is ready for exhibition. He exits the studio with Yvonne, leaving Dot and George alone. Dot announces her intention of 
moving to America with Louis. He has been hired by American tourists to serve as their pastry chef, no big deal, time to make the donuts, etc. This results in an intense argument between our two leads. George returns to the park to sketch his mother as she has finally agreed to model for him. She examines the Parisian skyline with a sigh, lamenting how much of it has changed in her lifetime. George encourages her to appreciate the beauty of all things instead of living in the past. She advises him in turn to preserve every moment as best he can, lest they slip away. Dot approaches George with their newborn daughter, Marie. George refuses to face her, and when she asks for her portrait a second time, he flatly declares it has already been painted over. What a jackass. Dot leaves for America with Louis by her side. As Act 1 draws to an end, the park erupts in a storm of calamity. George's mother calls out, imploring her son to remember everything as it was on this day. George commands the park into silence and stillness with a simple wave of his hand. Moments later, after some careful repositioning on George's part, the residents of the park have been arranged into their final tableau. A Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte is now complete. Act 2. The year is 1984. The men, women, children, and animals populating George's painting are still frozen in place, and they are not happy about it. You try hanging from a wall for a century, see how you like it. The figures reflect on their time with George and his untimely death before vanishing one by one. To commemorate a Sunday afternoon's 100th anniversary, George and Dot's great-grandson, an artist whose name is also George, unveils Chromalume No. 7, the latest in a series of machines that produce astonishing light shows. George's grandmother, Marie, is in attendance for the Chromalume's unveiling. Marie insists her biological father is Georges Seurat, a revelation her mother, Dot, shared shortly before dying. The George of modern day doubts this claim. True, Marie Marie has an old grammar book Dot used when teaching herself how to read, and yes, the notes in Dot's book make reference to a man named George. But what does any of this prove? Marie is 98 years old. She has no idea what she is talking about, probably. George's ex-wife, Elaine, is understandably weary of his moods and cynicism, though she has come to love Marie as if she were her own grandmother. Note, Bernadette Peters played both Dot and Marie in the original production, and those roles have traditionally been played by a single actress in subsequent stagings. George, Elaine, and Marie head to a reception where figures from the art world have gathered to celebrate and or deride Chromalume No. 7. The energy required to promote himself and his art leaves George feeling depleted. It doesn't help when Blair, a critic he respects, writes off the Chromalume as an exercise in repetition. Chromalume No. 6, No. 7, No. 8, what's the difference? The kids seem to like it, to a point. Move on already! Marie finds herself seated before the original Sunday afternoon. She speaks to the image of her mother, expressing concern for the modern-day George. Will he ever learn to embrace their family's history? Will he ever find happiness? Weeks later, Marie passes away. George travels with the Chromalume to La Grande Jatte, where the French government plans to include the machine as part of a new exhibit. The island has been overrun with apartments and office buildings, and very little remains of the old landscape. 
George opens Dot's grammar book and begins to read her notes. Dot appears, believing the man standing before her is the George she knew and loved in 1884. She encourages him to reject hesitation and fear. Try something new. Take the bull by the horns and move on already. Or as Kelly Clarkson would say, make a wish, take a chance, make a change, and break away. The figures who inhabit Sunday afternoon return to the stage to greet and pay their respects to George. The grim and gray architecture of 1984 is suddenly swept away, and as George looks upon his great-grandfather's famous tableau, he finds himself reinvigorated. Now, before we move on, I would like to highlight a couple of lines from James Lapine's book that I particularly enjoyed. There is a moment between the surly boatman. Do you remember me talking about the surly boatman? Well, he has a conversation with the American tourists who talk to him as if he is deaf and does not understand English. They are trying to find passage off of La Grande Jatte, and the boatman says to them after staring at them for a couple of seconds, he says... Why don't you just walk into the water till your lungs fill up and you die? I love that line. <laughs> and then the second line I want to highlight here is from Act 2. This is delivered by a character named Dennis, who acts as George's assistant. He says, quote, I'm going back to NASA. There's just too much pressure in this line of work. Quote, this line of work being the art world, it's a guaranteed laugh line. Good job, James Lapine. I also have a couple of general observations before I go into all of my sources for this week. General observation number one, we are meant to laugh at the American tourists I mentioned because they are presented as being stupid and rude and fat and only care about eating pastries. These jokes may have produced a lot of laughs when Sunday premiered, but they read as awfully old hat today. Americans, am I right? So fat. I, I mean, okay. <laughs> Holy crap. General observation number two. I want to address the issue of accents in this piece. The vast majority of characters in Sunday are French, though from what I've seen, none of the actors who take on these parts wind up speaking with a French accent. The American tourists are always presented as Kentucky Fried Southern. Jules' servants, Franz and Frida, are German and or Swiss. I'm not really sure on that point. We learn via the book that Marie was raised in South Carolina, and though Bernadette Peters does not capitalize on this fact, everyone who has followed in her footsteps has played Marie with a drawl to varying degrees of success. So it's not like we're flattening everyone out to achieve some neutral status across the board. Accents are being routinely employed, so why can't I hear a little French? Wee oui, wee. Oui. For crying out loud, I watched a full performance that was staged in Paris, and not a single person sounded French. I find that to be strange. For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1984 original Broadway cast album of Sunday in the Park with George. I watched the 1984 Tony Awards performance of Sunday. I have nothing of substance to say when it comes to the Tony's performance, as it is recreated to full effect in our next source, but can we talk about that shot of Sondheim near the end? He is positively beaming with pride in the face of this cast. There is love in his eyes and his characteristic smirk. I do say I love it. 
I then went on to watch the 1985 Showtime PBS recording. A few facts for you regarding this source. The original Broadway production was recorded at the Booth Theater between October 21st and 25th, 1985. Most of the original cast was present, and Bernadette was granted time off from appearing in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Song and Dance to take part in the taping. The resulting program, which was directed by Terry Hughes, aired on Showtime in February 1986 and on PBS as part of their American Playhouse series later that same year. I can't tell you the last time I would have sat down with this recording, and let me tell you, it was a pleasure. Tony Strauch's and Richard Nelson's Tony Award-winning designs are unparalleled. Every element from the towering flats and scrims to the living dioramas and countless trapdoor effects flows seamlessly into and alongside the next. No subsequent production of Sunday has proven to be this immersive or wondrous, and so I must tip my hat to Tony and Richard. You deserved those medallions, me boyos. Does the effect of Dot's dress opening up have any razzle-dazzle power in 2021, or is it merely quaint? I don't mean to be condescending, it's just funny to imagine Broadway's spectacle as being defined by a trick, spring-loaded dress, especially in the context of the 1980s. I mean, Phantom had its chandelier, Cats had its extraterrestrial monster truck tire, and Sunday had a spring-loaded dress. That's it. I suppose what I'm saying is I don't really need the spring-loaded dress, especially when it's the only bit of pizzazzified gimmickry in the entire production. Here's a moment I in no way recalled. Franz, the servant, choking out Louise, the young daughter of Jules and Vaughn. He has one hand wrapped around her tiny throat and is basically trying to kill her in broad daylight. Like, I'm not a fan of Louise either. She's infuriating and Danielle Furland is going out of her way to play up that quality. But I was not expecting an honest-to-God chokehold. My goodness. I then went on to watch Omnibus, Sunday in the Park with Stephen. This documentary, which aired on March 20th, 1990 via the BBC, documents the rehearsal process for Sunday's West End premiere, which took place at the Royal National Theatre in 1990. It also includes excerpts from Sondheim's lecture series at Oxford University, where he served as a visiting professor. I would include clips, but the audio keeps dropping out when you least expect it. Not the best upload, and it doesn't make for a great listening experience. I would like to share this quote from one of Sondheim's lectures, which is in reference to writing for the musical theater. Quote, You must be able to defend every single word and note. So everything must be a conscious decision, just like Seurat's dots. Quote, the seminar footage is far more interesting than what we see of the Royal National production, which seems uh, uh, dull. Philip Quast is doing an impression of Mandy Patinkin, and Maria Friedman's performance as Dot is just intensity without density, to borrow and flip a turn of phrase. The chromolume is replaced with a performance art piece? Sondheim claims this is more, quote, cutting edge than their original concept, and I have to disagree. Watching people lope about and shove each other is not my idea of cutting edge. The scenic elements are are inexplicable. At one point, Dot's figure from the painting, Sunday Afternoon, moves onto the stage with the speed of a battleship 
pulling into port. This thing is like 50 feet tall, yet when the cast is assembled to create Surat's tableau, they are crammed together into a box like sardines, as I said, inexplicable. Two additional points regarding this program. First, the director of the Royal National Production, Stephen Pimlot. I can't tell if he's being humble or frightfully sincere when he casually writes off a director's responsibility to a piece. According to Pimlot, directors do nothing while the designers and writers work around them. Directors merely make suggestions as to what someone might do on stage as if directors don't typically cast to their own shows or, you know, lend their perspective and philosophy and personal sense of style to those shows. He says, this is verbatim, quote, I don't really have a vision as such. I don't think, oh, I see it like this, gosh, if we said it during the Roman Empire, or I can see it all in black and white. It doesn't really happen like that. Quote, well, of course it doesn't, Pimlot, man alive. He goes on to posit Sunday in the Park with George will still be around in 100 years, unlike La Cage Full, which he... <laughs> He cites that show specifically. He compares the two. So, uh, slam! Take that, Mr. Herman! Now I need to talk about the woman in this cast who is shown to be singing while chewing gum. This is during a rehearsal, I should say. Everyone is standing around with their sheet music in hand, and this goofball is chewing gum! Gum! You do not sing Sondheim while chewing gum! You spit that gum into my hand this instant! Patooey, I say! Alright, so what did I do? next? Well, I listened to the 2006 London Revival cast album. The London album features Daniel Evans as George and Jenna Russell as Dot. I assumed it would be very difficult for anyone to live up to the foundation laid by Potenkin and Peters, but these two come damn close. Russell's voice is infused with a remarkable amount of warmth, like a fresh loaf of bread. She is also the first actress I encountered who lent Marie a South Carolinian accent, which she uses to great effect. Evan's take on George is notably less grim and mercurial than that of Potenkin, more fussy and prickly than gruff or foreboding. It's a strong interpretation. Speaking of strong, the orchestral work on this album is first-rate and proves what a small group of musicians can produce in terms of power and panache. I then watched the 2013 Théâtre du Châtelet production in Paris, France. This production, which was broadcast via Radio France and Mezzo TV features a 46-piece orchestra and new arrangements by the show's original orchestrator, Michael Starobin. It is also fully available via YouTube. You can write off my disinterest in this production as a result of fatigue, but I would object to that assessment. This is a bloated, swollen, beached whale of a production that fails to engage on any level. Those new arrangements are cacophonous and unrevealing. I did not connect with Julian Ovenden's George or Sophie Louise Dan's Dot at All and the scenic design, my goodness. Little more than a collection of ugly, flat-screen televisions and slow-moving turntables. It's like watching ants trying to make their way across a vinyl record. The scene between the boatmen and the American tourists, you remember the scene, I described it in detail, that scene takes place entirely on those flat screen televisions, by the way. It generates exactly zero laughs from the audience, probably because it feels as if we're watching a full motion video scene from an edutainment video game. Organ
fucking trail anyone? I have a lot of other complaints when it comes to this Chatelet production, but I will save them for later. Finally, I listened to the 2017 Broadway Revival cast album. This production starred Jake Gyllenhaal as George and Annalie Ashford as Dot. I'm sure you're very familiar with Mr. Gyllenhaal, TV's Danny Darko. I, I loved Danny Darko when I was a kid. What a good TV show. I am Danny Darko and I love rabbits. What a great catchphrase. All that show is available on YouTube, the full series. Sunday in the Park with George is, unsurprisingly, a much better showcase for Ash for its talents than Kinky Boots, which relegated her to the role of goofy romantic interest who stands right at the edge of the hapless hero's periphery. Ashford's take on Marie does land with a thud, unfortunately. She gets trapped in the drawl and winds up sounding like a sketch character. Some additional facts for you. This staging of Sunday began as a series of concert performances, which were presented as part of New York City Center's 2016 gala. It then transitioned to the Hudson Theater in 2017, though the producers eventually withdrew it from awards consideration. Why? Well, here's their full statement. Quote, The producers of Sunday will not be submitting Hudson Theater's engagement of this New York City Center production for awards eligibility. With a season so full of tremendous, soon-to-be-long-running new musicals and revivals, the producers feel this extremely limited special run of Sunday stands most appropriately outside of any awards competition. The production is nevertheless proud to be a part of such a landmark Broadway season. Quote, Fair enough. Gyllenhaal and Ashford are set to travel with the production when it opens at the Savoy Theatre later this year. That is the plan, at least. London seems much more keen to open its theatres than Broadway, but you never know. Artists are bizarre, fixed, cold. That's you, George, you're this fixed. of a stay right under the tit now don't give in just lift the arm a bit don't lift the arm please sunday in the park with george bustle high please not even a nod as if i were trees the ground could open he would still say please say anything, can we hear a bit of the opening from the 2006 London album? 
that is the stuff. A sexy oboe is always welcome in our home. I first thought to myself, is that a French horn I hear? No, of course not. It is not a French horn, Jonathan. It's an oboe, right? Uh, oh boy. I don't know. You can't turn to me when it comes to this stuff. I do not play any instruments, and I never learned how to read music as a reminder. So this is the show's titular number, Sunday in the Park with George, and I dare say it is a gas and a half. If you're not here for the vocal fry on the second appearance of Bizarre, then you're not here to play. Artists are bizarre. I love it. I can't get over how Bernadette pushes the final George through clenched teeth before opening up to produce a clear, clean note. Is this as difficult as I assume for a vocalist? She is a master at work. The 2013 Théâtre de Châtelet production ditches the spring-loaded dress we were talking about earlier and replaces it with a decidedly weaker effect. Upon breaking out of her stiff pose, Dot's image is projected onto a canvas located upstage of Sophie Louise Dan. Here's the odd part. The image of Dot is moving, but only slightly. It's exactly like looking at a Hogwarts portrait. You have expect her to turn around and ask for a password. I'm not sure why everyone feels the need to show off when it comes to this moment. Simply begin with Dot posing in a tight column of light. When the time comes, have her step out of the light and move freely about. Simple. I would also like it if Dot and George kissed before she went into her pose. We should see them kiss at least once before their relationship falls apart. Yes? Right? This is the director talking. Jonathan, hello! I I'm wearing my conical director's cap. It might be in some dreary socialistic periodical. Good. So drab, so cold. And so controlled. No, no life. life. His touch is too deliberate somehow. The dog. Ah, <laughs> these things get hung. And then they're gone. Ah, of course he's young. Hmm? But getting old. Oh, all mind, no heart. No life in his art. No life in his life. No. a soft spot in my heart for Jules and Yvonne, otherwise known as the shittiest people in all of Paris. These are dreadful people who get off on ripping art to shreds. I cannot say I wish to emulate them, but I can relate to how they so easily lean into a tooth and claw approach to their surroundings. I watched way too much MST3K growing up, okay? There is always going to be a certain amount of acidic snark in my blood. So when Jules and Yvonne show 
show up to sing gossip, I find I am of two minds. Stop it! Be nice! But also, do go on. You know damn well Yvonne wrote most of her insults the night before they visited the gallery. It might be in some dreary socialistic periodical. Oh, you were gonna say that no matter what, Yvonne. You're an insufferable twit, and I adore you. Nothing seems to fit me right. The less I wear, the more comfortable I feel. <laughs> more rouge. George is very special. Maybe I am just not special enough for him. If my legs were longer, if my bust was smaller, if my hands were graceful, if my waist was thinner, if my hips were flatter, if my voice was warm, if I could concentrate, I'd be in the Follies, I'd be in a cabaret, gentlemen in tall silk cats and linen spats would wait with flowers, I could make them wait for hours, giddy young aristocrats with fancy flats who drink my health and I And they'd only want me more If I was a folly girl Nah, I wouldn't like it much Married men and stupid boys And too much smoke And all that noise And all that color and light Aren't you proper today, miss? Your parasol so properly cocked bustle so perfectly upright. No doubt your chin rested just the proper angle from your chest. And you, sir, your hat's so black. So black to you, perhaps. So red to me. None of the others worked tonight. So composed for a Sunday. How do you work without the right, 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 light? How do you fathom George? Red, 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 orange, red, red, orange, orange, pick a blue, pick a bread, pick a orange from the blue, green, blue, green, blue, Circle on a violet diagonal deck. Tech, 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 no, 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 yellow, comma, yellow, comma, nom, 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 nom. Blue, 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 still sitting, red, that perfume, blue, all night, blue, bring the window shut, dot, 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 sitting, dot, dot, waiting, dot, dot, getting fat, 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 more yellow, dot, dot, waiting to go out, 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 but no, 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 George, finish the hat, finish the hat, have to finish the hat, first hat, 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 hot, 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 it's hot in here. There are several instances throughout the show, and color and light specifically, when Dot and George are forced to reckon with their awful, aching doubts. A cherry bomb goes off in their face, and they fall backwards into a melancholic pit. Oh right, I actually have a number of unresolved emotional issues. That's upsetting, and I was having such a nice evening, too. Relatable. Trey, relatable. I'm sure this is obvious to a lot of Sunday scribes, but Dot's observation regarding her clothes struck me as a nice piece of foreshadowing. She says, nothing seems to fit right. That's because you're pregnant, Dot. Pregnant! 
Don't get me started on how the Chatelet production stages Dot's fantasy of performing in the Follies. Short answer, it doesn't. They simply display an enormous kick line of animated chorus girls on their collection of flat screen televisions. Anything to distract the audience from having to focus on the actors, am I right? Don't look at Sophie Louise Dan, look at this. Sunday was never meant to be a 3D IMAX experience. Gyllenhaal's George is positively carnal throughout his performance of Color and Light, like a hyena whose appetite is impossible to satisfy. He sounds as if he's on the hunt while painting, and the way he describes Dot's beauty borders on unsettling. Mm, the lips, the neck, oh yes, watch out, Dot, you're living with a beast! More shade, more tail. More grass. Would you like some more grass? Roof, roof. Thanks. The week has been rough. When you're stuck for life on a garbage skull, only 40 feet long from stern to prow, and a crackpot in the bow. Wow. Planks are rough, and the wind is rough, and the master's drunk and mean and gruff, gruff. With the fish and scum and planks and ballast, the nose gets numb and the paws get callous. And with splinters in your ass, you look forward to the grass on Sunday. Ah, the day of announcement to make regarding the number we just heard, the day off. The names of the dogs that George talks to, the names of those dogs are Chowder and Alexander. I will not be taking questions at this time. Look, we're only human. It must be said, we are but human. But Julian Ovenden really screws up during the 2013 Chatelet production when he says, quote, Stuck all week on a lady's lap. Nothing to do but yawn and nap. Can you blame me if I nap? Quote, Julian, buddy, it's yap. It's yap. We are recording this for future generations, my dude. Why are you saying nap twice? The Chatelet production offers yet another Hogwarts portrait during this sequence, if you can believe it. The boatman's dog, aka Chowder, is projected onto a canvas. The dog is shown to be realistic, and it is kind of moving around. Bark, bark, I am a dog. 
The little girl who plays Louise pets the dog at one point, and I found that moment to be ridiculous. Do not ask anyone to pet a glorified gif. Can anyone out there explain the meaning of there's the muddle in the middle? Collins Dictionary offers this definition of the phrase. The muddle in the middle is the confusion which can develop as an organization grows, where disconnects emerge in the middle, which result in negative impacts at the edges, mitigated in theory by program, portfolio, and project management. Quote, yeah, well, thank you very much, Collins Dictionary. That did not help. Louis really an artist. Louis cakes are an art. Louis isn't the smartest. Louis popular. Everybody loves Louis. Louis begs from the heart. The bread, George. I mean the bread, George. And then in bed, George. I mean he hard to follow. Louis' art is not hard to swallow. Not that Louis' perfection, that's what makes him ideal. Hardly anything worth objection. Louis drinks a bit, Louis blinks a bit, Louis makes a connection. That's the thing that you feel. We lose things, and then we choose things, and there are trouble, nothing's wrong with him. Louis has to make his way, George can only make his. Louis it is! I really want to talk about the final moments of Everybody Loves Louis, but in order to do that, we need to get some miscellaneous musings out of the way first. One, quote, there are Louis and there are Georges. Well, Louise and George, quote, Multa bene, Mr. Sondheim, before writing that lyric. Multa bene, that stuck with me. Two, if we were to produce a Sunday in the Park motion picture, the only actor who should be considered for the role of Louis is Jesse Plemons. Case closed. Three, do we believe Louis is as good in bed as Dot claims, or is he merely adept when it comes to a back massage? A good quality to have in a man, to be sure, but I believe Dot is overcompensating here. Four, the Chatelet version of this number involves 
choreography of all things, dancing. The last thing Sunday needed was a rudimentary box step. Are you kidding me? What are we, animals? Have Louis stand center stage while people pick through his baskets. Have him stare straight out. Louis is a himbo. Let him be a himbo, dancing in Sunday in the park with George. Lord above! I know I said we wouldn't hear any audio from the Omnibus documentary, but I do want you to hear Sondheim talk about the end of Everybody Loves Louie and the challenges it presented to him. Roll that beautiful bean footage, if you please. We have a lot of trouble with the button on one of the, one of the numbers here, which is the button to Everybody Loves Louie. Um, uh, I'm hoping that we might find a, a better button here in, uh, in England. Uh, it's a number, it always got a nice hand, but it should, got a, should have gotten a better than nice hand. And there's something wrong with the button, and I don't know whether it's musical or whether it's a bit of business on the stage. I don't know yet. Thank you very much for that beautiful bean footage. This is a fascinating quandary. How do you come up with a decent button for the song that tells your audience it's time for an ovation, time to applaud? I feel Dot should jump into Louis's arms on the final note. Jump, strike a pose, freeze, applause. The problem is there is a small patch of time between the song's final lyric, Louis it is, and that final note, so you would need to fill the time somehow. But who doesn't recognize a leap and a pose as the signal for applause? We can make this work, Mr. Sondheim. I know we can. Insanely, Stephen Pimlot talks about how they have gone out of their way to remove Sondheim's buttons. Oh, we don't want them to applaud. The whole thing has to be seamless. But if this proves to be a problem and the evening feels a bit dead, I suppose we can always add them back in. This guy is an idiot. If Sondheim wants applause, work with him to elicit applause. What does Pimlot think he is directing? The fucking seagull? No applause. Pimlot, you oaf! Yes, she looks for me. Good. Let her look for me to tell me why she left me, as I always knew she would. I had thought she understood. They have never understood, and no reason that they should. But if anybody could Finishing the hat How you have to finish the hat How you watch the rest of the world from a window While you finish the hat Mapping out a sky What you feel like planning the sky what you feel when voices that come through the window go Until they distance and die Until there's nothing but sky And how you're always turning back too late From the grass or the stick or the dog or the light How the kind of woman willing to wait's not the kind that you want to find waiting To return you to the night Dizzy from the height Coming from the hat Studying the hat Entering the world of the hat
Finishing the hat is much like Marry Me a Little, the Act 1 finale of Sondheim's Company. By the way, did we talk about how the original title of Company was Threes? Threes. Yikes. Anyway, Finishing the Hat is comparable to Marry Me a Little because both songs are about men who have no idea what they want from the women in their lives. They sort of want to be in a relationship. They enjoy sex, certainly. Do George and Bobby know how to communicate with women? God, God, no, 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 they do not. George has more empathy for dogs than he does for Dot. I knew Dot would leave me because everyone leaves me. All of the women I date leave me, though I sort of assumed Dot would never leave me at the same time. Oh, what a paradox. Hey, puppy dog, look, I made a hat. I do like when Mandy Patinkin shows his drawing to the dog. It is a great bit of staging on Lapine's part. I should say he shows the picture of the hat to Alexander, the tiny dog. Chowder is the big black dog and Alexander is the tiny yapping dog. I should have made that distinction and now I have, let's move on. Why are you telling me this? First you ask for a painting that is not yours, and now you tell me this. I have work to do. Yes, George. Run to your work. Hide behind your painting. I have come to tell you that I am leaving because I thought you might care to know. Foolish of me because you care about nothing. I care about many things. Things, not people. People too. I cannot divide my feelings up as neatly as you. And I am not hiding behind my canvas. I am living in it. What you care for is yourself. I care about this painting. You will be I in this painting. I have something you can use. I thought you It's because I understand that I left, that there I am leaving. There is say, is there? Yes, George, there is. You can tell me not to go. Say it to me. Tell me not to go. Tell me that you're hurt. Tell me you're relieved. Tell me that you're bored. Anything, but don't assume I know. Tell me what you feel. What I feel? You know exactly how I feel. Why do you insist you must hear the words when you know I cannot give you words? Not the ones you need. There's nothing to say. I cannot be what you want. What do you want? I needed you and you left. There was no room for you. You will not accept who I am. I am what I do, which you knew, which you always knew, which I thought you were a part of. No, you are complete, George. You are your own we do not belong together we do not belong together is the argument song every composer wishes they could write eat your heart out alan bubliel your soap opera caterwauling is nothing compared to this material i in no way feel bad for george this should be made absolutely clear i am rooting for dot to say her piece and get out of that studio having left nothing on the table george is telling you the truth he cannot give you what you need so run run would I run to late 19th century South Carolina? No, but we all have different paths in life. 
All things are beautiful, Mother. All trees, all towers, beautiful. That tower, beautiful, Mother. between George and his mother, who I am just now learning is officially known as The Old Lady, is in line with the title of their duet. It's a beautiful relationship. He is this stubborn stone who expects everyone to remain firmly in place like him. His mother, meanwhile, is drifting away from him as a result of old age. She is wistful and brittle. He is laser-focused and fiercely objective. George's mother appreciates the power her son has to freeze a moment in time with his art, but that artistic bent has always worried her to some degree. When she says, quote, We tried to get through to you, George. Really, we did. Quote, That line knocks me out. She has always viewed her son as standing on an island while she watches him from the mainland. I understand her desire to take a snapshot of the world. She wants to live in that snapshot. But, as Dodd informs us at the end of Act 2, we cannot allow ourselves to be ensnared by the past for the sake of nuzzling up with nostalgia. Ask the figures trapped forever in George's painting. They will tell you how much it stinks to stand in one place forever. I would love to play George, but I simply don't have the vocal range, especially when it comes to accessing my head voice. Dot sings about her love of George and his size, which may be a dick joke, but it also leads me to assume George is supposed to be visibly, inarguably sturdy. No one is in the market for a twunk George Seurat. I would probably play Dennis, let's be real. I like Dennis, to be clear, but then you'd have to double as Franz, which, eh, no thanks. No thank you. Not the best combo, TBH.
animated flecks of light and Sunday, the Act 1 finale of this week's subject, no one manages to beat the original Broadway company. They have total control over their collective sound, which calls to mind the original cast of Leonard Bernstein's Candide. Much like Make Our Garden Grow, Sunday begins by skimming the surface of silence and ends with the sort of sonic power that could take down the pyramids. You know how the pyramids are always flaunting their ability to remain standing in the face of a choir. Yeah, well, I, for one, am sick of their arrogance. Watch yourself, pyramids, because musical theater has its eye on you. It's hot up here. It's hot and it's monotonous. I want my glasses. This is not my good profile. I hate this dress. It's hot up here. The soldiers have forgotten us. It's hot and it's monotonous.
number of Act 2, It's Hot Up Here, is an oddball one-off that stretches itself thin while trying to fill four and a half minutes of stage time. Let's be real, all of the laughs you could ever hope to generate are generated in the first 30 seconds of the number. After that, we're basically spinning our wheels, reiterating the premise until everyone is blue in the face. The premise, or the inherent central question, being, what would it be like to know you're in a painting? The answer? Horrible. A dreary, ceaseless nightmare. I am fully cognizant of the person I am meant to represent, and yet I have no free will. I am instead trapped forever in a state of rictus, surrounded by idiots. The actual painting nearly perished in a fire while on exhibit in New York City, and I have a feeling these characters would have welcomed the flames. I am intrigued by the premise of It's Hot Up Here. There is no denying it, but again, four and a half minutes? Snip, snip, I say. Snip, snip! The OBC album pairs the instrumental theme for George's latest chromolume with putting it together, in which the hotshot artist is forced to reckon with his public. Let's hear the theme for chromolume number seven first. of the show, this music was written by a character named Naomi Eisen. And I hate to tell you this, George, but this is not Naomi's best work. It sounds like the Phantom of the Opera is presenting the 1985 Toyota Corolla alongside a Dark Side of the Moon planetarium show. For the sake of comparison, I would like to switch over to the 2017 Broadway revival. What does that chromolume theme sound like? Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to present to you my seventh chromolume, which pays homage to Seurat's A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. <laughs> See, this is hitting a sweet spot for me. If this isn't the music you'd hear under an 11th hour Final Fantasy boss fight, then I suppose I'm a monkey's uncle. But enough about the Chromalume. I'm kidding. I have more to say about the Chromalume. It's time we heard Putting It Together. There's the man of the hour. Blair! Hello. I read your piece on neo-expressionism. Good for you. Well... What did you think? George, chromolume number seven. Be nice, George. I was hoping it would be a series of three, four at the most. You have to pay a I price, you George. In the beginning, you know that. You were really on to something. They like to give advice, like to George. Advice. Now they 
just don't think about it twice, George. Less. I disagree. Now, don't get me wrong. You're a talented guy, but I think you're capable of far more. Be new, George. They tell you to the blue, George. Your new rush are through, George. And even if it's true, George, you do what you can do. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, working at the vision night and day. All it takes is time and perseverance, with a little luck along the way. Putting in a personal appearance, gathering supporters and adherents. But he combines all these different trends. Mapping out the right configuration, starting with a suitable foundation. He's an original. Was. Planning up a prominent commission, and an exhibition in addition. You're a little dab of politician. I like the images. Touch of publication. What the the balance composition. Depends on preparation. The art of making art. Putting it together. Link by bit. Link by link. Drink by drink. Link by mink. And that is the state of the Throughout this number, George summons a small army of cardboard doppelgangers who can take his place whenever a conversation turns dull or sour. They pop out of the stage via trapdoors. It's great. You get a clone. You get a clone. Everybody gets a clone. This strategy does not work when trying to evade Blair, the art critic who has nothing nice to say about Chromalume number seven. George tries to summon another cardboard doppelganger, and it does not come out of the trapdoor. He is screwed. He has to talk to Blair. And Blair is the best. I was always excited to enter into Act 2 and know Blair was just around the corner. Blair tells George to move on way before Dot's ghost comes a-calling, and that is because Blair is a smart cookie. I do not want to read her piece on neo-expressionism. I don't want to read it. She doesn't want me to read it. We're both in agreement. I have a whole pitch for how a Sunday in the Park movie might work, a pitch I will save for my final thoughts, but here is something to chew on for the time being. George's doppelgangers should be holograms generated by the chromalume. He could use a remote to activate them, and they would eventually begin to malfunction. Oh, this is a very good idea, trust me. If you thought we could move on without my complaining about the 2013 Chatelet production, <laughs> you're kidding yourself. Putting it together introduces us to a couple of minor characters, Harriet Pauling, a museum board member, and her lover, Billy Webster. When you watch the original Broadway production, it's clear these two are fucking. They are a couple in one sense or another. For the 2013 production, Harriet and Billy are presented as lesbians, and when Harriet introduces Billy to George, she stumbles on the word friend. The word friend is is in the line. Here is the line and how she chooses to deliver it in this 2013 Chatelet production. Quote, Oh, hi, I'm Harriet Pauling, and this is my friend, Billy Webster. Quote, So let me get this straight, for the lack of a better word. Is Harriet in the closet and ashamed of her relationship with Billy? What is going on here? Who was asking for this? You know what Sunday has always needed? Lesbians grappling with the dark interior of the closet. Give me a break! Many have described the second act of Sunday as lumpy or unnecessary, and I'm here to say there is nothing wrong with a lumpy or technically unnecessary second act. The second act of Into the Woods is lumpy, unnecessary, and brilliant. 
That is the ooey-gooey center of that piece, where all of the best character and thematic insights reside. The same can be said of Sunday's second act. Act 1 is a complete object. It has a crystal clear beginning, middle, and end, leaving no loose ends to flap in the breeze. So no, we do not need Act 2 of Sunday, but I do want to watch George and Marie fumble their way through a glorified PowerPoint presentation. I do want Marie in this show, and I want George to talk to the ghost of his great-grandmother. This is not a matter of do we need this, it's a matter of does this work, and you better believe it works, bub. Henry. 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 It's George, grandmother. Of course it is. I thought you were your father for a moment. Did I tell you who that was? Of course. That is your mother. Isn't she beautiful? There she is, there she is, there she is, there she is. Mama is everywhere. He must have loved her so much. Is she really in all those places, Marie? This is our family. This is the lot. After I go, this is all that you've got, honey. Wasn't she beautiful, though? Bye, Mama.
Children and art makes me want to move in with my nana and never leave her side. My nana is very small, and yes, she in no way requires my help, but if she wanted to putter around a museum and talk to the paintings all day, I would make it happen. The way Bernadette Peters' voice cracks when she sings, Mama was funny, Mama was fun. I was a lump of sugar. I am a lump of sugar and a tall glass of water over here. I am dissolving. How about when she says goodbye, Mama, at the end of the number, like she knows it's the last time she will ever see the painting? Saying your goodbyes in a cold museum gallery, you might as well be standing in the funeral home in front of an open casket. Sad. How about these lyrics? Quote, this is our family. This is the lot. After I go, this is all that you got. Sad. Sad! George will be all alone once Marie dies. Who is he going to spend time with? Dennis? I'm not saying he should go back to Elaine, but... Alright, yes, I am saying that. Elaine is played by Mary Darcy in the original Broadway production, and she is the top. She is a Caesar salad. You go to Elaine and you beg for a second chance, George. You beg. Elaine is not a Caesar salad in the 2013 Chatelet production. The costume and makeup designs are criminal. They make that character look like a character out of Beetlejuice. It's a disaster. Are you working on something new? No. That is not like you, George. I've nothing to say. You have many things. Well, nothing that's not been said. Said by you, though, I George. do not know where to go. And nor did I. I want to make things that count. Things that I did what I new. had to do. What am I to do? things you've done for me opened up my eyes taught me how to see notice every tree notice every tree understand the light understand the light concentrate I on want love. I want to explore the light I want to know how to get through through to something new something of my own Oh, the way you catch the light 
It will be new. Give us more to see. If Sondheim had an agenda in the 1980s, it involved composing songs for Bernadette Peters that served as thunderous statements of intent. Move On is all about rejecting hesitation, bursting through it and into the next phase of your life. Make a decision, George. Make one decision in this one moment, then make another. Do not worry so very much about the future. Into the Woods ends on a very different note. Its statement of intent, children will listen, is more cautious, advising us to absolutely be wary of the future and how our decisions inevitably impact others. Move On is a perfectly fine piece of advice for George, a guy who is single and can go anywhere he wants, do anything he wants, but if he had kids, a family, well, the advice would need to change. Sondheim has a lot to offer in the way of advice, and I think it's best we keep our ears open and pay attention to what he has to say. One of the original Broadway production's most striking images comes right at the end of the Sunday reprise. Dot, having been separated from George by a large scrim, is lit from behind to showcase her silhouette. This silhouette is then absorbed by a wall of black and white dots that are projected onto the scrim. She is gone, and yet she is all around us at the same time. I love it. But would you like to hear my idea for a final image? Oh, you would. Oh, how generous. We should end the show with George joining the Sunday afternoon tableau. This would address the question posed by Sondheim and Lapine all those years ago. Namely, why is Seurat himself not in the crowd? The answer, he always thought of himself as standing apart from the rest of humanity, at least in the context of this highly fictionalized take on his life. But with Dot and Marie's help, George's ancestor is able to reestablish that connection with humanity and become a part of the great grand tapestry. Yes, yes, this is my A number one pitch moving forward as director. Someone hand me my conical cap. My takeaway from Sunday in the Park with George, and this should absolutely be filed under my final thoughts, but hey, what can I say, this is Sparta, is you shouldn't be an artist if you can't make time to be a decent human being. Do not use other people as fodder 
for your creative ambitions, your creations, if you cannot give them anything of yourself in return. George tells Dot to keep her eyes open and look forward in the opening number, which is exactly what he needs to be doing. Jules may be an envious prat, an adulterer with a limited artistic vision, but I believe he is right when he tells George to live the life you hope to capture in your work. And whenever possible, do not get lost in self-flagellation and navel-gazing. The show isn't telling us to ignore grief or frustration. Take those things with you as you move forward. All feelings are valid, but they should not act as stones in your pockets, dragging you to the bottom of the sea. And you know what? It's okay to die. That's part of my takeaway from this show as well. If your impact on the world is less than what you expected, that's okay too. Get over yourself. It's refreshing. Don't be the, oh, things used to be so much better person in the room. If you're not going to try and make today a little more bearable for yourself and everyone else. That's all I have to say regarding the score of Sunday in the Park with George. It is now time to hear from our fine, fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. to thank Mr. Wellerstein for visiting us today and reading from his truly astounding first novel, Light Out of the Darkness. Does anyone have any questions for Mr. Wellerstein? Does anyone have any questions that do not pertain to the shrink ray accident? Yes, you, sir. Uh, yeah, uh, if you don't mind my asking, what happened with the shrink ray? All right, well, there's donuts and 5678 coffee in the back. Thank you all for coming. I'm so sorry, Mr. Wellerstein. Hey, no, it's no problem. Really, no. I, I actually could have taken literally one drop of that coffee. Oh, of course, Mr. Wellerstein. Yes, of thank course. You. Thank you very much. Final thoughts regarding Sunday in the Park with George. I'm pretty sure we can cut down the first act by at least 10 to 15 minutes. Again, you can chalk this up to fatigue, but I never need to hear from Franz, Frida, or the soldiers. We should not get rid of them completely. That would break the show. But we can stand to pare down their material a little bit. Sorry, not sorry. I am quite keen to know what a film version of Sunday would look like with someone like Ava DuVernay at the helm. The current two-act structure of the piece 
probably wouldn't translate to the silver screen, but if you were to put the acts on top of each other, moving back and forth between 1884 and 1984, that could prove to be quite effective. I actually really like that idea. I think that could be very interesting. If you need me to be on set as an advisor, as a consultant, I would be happy to fly out on your dime. I am not cheap. I am cheap, and yet I am not cheap if you get my drift. Wink, wink. P.S. Considering I have made a couple of passing references to Hogwarts and Harry Potter generally, let me say this. J.K. Rowling is a Nazi eugenicist billionaire who shouldn't be allowed to submit clues for a crossword puzzle, much less publish another book or sell another screenplay or a concept for a theme park ride. If you're giving her money in 2021, you are part of the problem. Well, she's not actually a billionaire. Oh, oh, you poor thing. Shush. Lie down. Rest your eyes. You look exhausted. Now, in 1984, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was La Caja and the additional nominees that season were Baby, which is about a baby, and the Tap Dance Kid. We've talked about the Tap Dance Kid. It's about a Tap Dance Kid. Who should have won that year? Oh, that's the question. I say Sunny in the Park with George should have won the Tony Award for Best Musical. I'm sorry, Mr. Herman. Paging Mr. Herman, rest in peace. All due respect, get out of the way. Sunny in the Park with George, you're the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical in 1984. Ha ha! We must now rank... Sunday in the Park with George, against all of the other musicals we have talked about here on The Musical Man. As a reminder, this is the 100th musical we have talked about, and so I took it upon myself to rebuild the ranking from scratch. That's right. If you want to look at the brand new, totally updated ranking, go to twitter.com slash musicalmanpod. Follow us on Twitter. The first tweet that you find in our like section, that's going to take you to a Google sheet. Go to the second tab. You will see this totally rebuilt from scratch ranking. It's true. You can also find the link to that Google sheet in our link tree. Oh, I love our link tree. It's so beautiful. Hey, link tree. That's a reference to Raisin. Remember us talking about Raisin? Okay, so here's what I did. I went straight down the list and I looked at every show that we have talked about in chronological order and I built out a brand new ranking. The question I had to ask myself was, if I had a ticket to a specific show, would I exchange that ticket for a ticket to the show right above it in the ranking? That's how I built out this brand new ranking and I'm going to tell you what this is. You can look at it yourself, but it's the 100th episode, so why wouldn't we go point for point, number by number, through this brand new ranking? We're gonna do it. It's crazy. Let's do it. Of course, we have to pay our respects to the Phantom Zone, which is filled with shows that don't have enough material for me to put my grubby little mitts on, or I just don't have a well-rounded opinion at this point. The Phantom Zone is inhabited by Big Deal, James Joyce's The Dead, Quilters, Merlin, After Midnight, Moving Out, and Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death. So let's move on to the official ranking. We're gonna start at the bottom here. Number 93, The Lieutenant. Number 92, Miss Saigon. 
Nothing much has changed in that regard. Those two are going to be there for quite some time, I think. Forever, maybe. I don't know. Number 91, Starmites. Number 90, Swinging on a Star. 89, Avenue Q. 88, Starlight Express. 87, Groundhog Day. 86, Blues in the Night. 85, Leader of the Pack. 84, Tootsie. 83, The Happy Time. 82, Sugar. 81, Bubbling Brown Sugar. 80, The Tap Dance Kid. 79, School of Rock. 78, Crazy For You. 77, Golden Boy. 76, South Pacific. 75, Hair. 74, Dear Evan Hansen. 73, Pump Boys and Dinettes. 72, Cats. 71, Big River. 70, Shrek the Musical. 69, Monty Python's Spamalot. 68, The Wedding Singer. 67, Juan Darien, A Carnival Mass. 66, Ragtime. 65, An American in Paris. 64, Mame. 63, The Wild Party. 62, Memphis. 61, The Phantom of the Opera. 60, Nice Work If You Can Get It. 59, Little Me. 58, Me and My Girl. 57, Jamaica. 56, The Goodbye Girl. 55, Once. 54, Once on This Island. 53, Grind. 52, City of Angels. 51, Xanadu. 50, Kinky Boots. 49, SpongeBob SquarePants. 48, The Lion King. 47, Les Miserables. 46, Applause. 45, Raisin. On the 20th Century is number 44. Steel Pier is number 43. 42, The Rothschilds. 41, The Most Happy Fella. 40, Hades Town. 39, Bring into Noise, Bring into Funk. 38, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. 37, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. 36, No Strings. 35, Ain't Misbehavin'. 34, Amor. 33, Avita. 32, Rent. 31, Rags. 30, Man of La Mancha. 29, Kiss Me Kate. 28, Damn Yankees. 27, Kiss of the Spider Woman. 26, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. 25, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. 24, Passing Strange. 23, Funny Girl. 22, Hairspray. 21, Grey Gardens. Number 20, Sunday in the Park with George, baby. Number 19, The Band's Visit. 18, Parade. 17, You're in Town. 16, Woman of the Year. 15, The Producers. 14, Waitress. 13, Sweeney Todd. 12, Gypsy. 11, Carolina Change. Here's the top 10. 10, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. 9, Candide. 8, The Light in the Piazza. 7, The Scarlet Pimpernel. 6, Into the Woods. 5, Company. 4, Hello Dolly. 3, Dream Girls. 2, Guys and Dolls. And number 1, a chorus line. Oh my goodness. So many changes. I was quite surprised, especially how that top 10 shook out. Carolina Change, I believe, had the number two slot for the longest time. But I gotta tell you, guys and dolls, to me right now, you gotta give it to guys and dolls. You gotta give it to them. I do have a couple of pieces of show-related ephemera for you this week. First, let us hear Sunday from Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom. Straight back and to the left. Pick up those fucking eggs. We're out of milk. Who's at my rye bread? Four waters to table I'm sorry seven. we don't deliver on Sunday. I need table three for two yesterday. Is there a list? Harrington, Harrington. Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N for seven. Order. No, I'm sorry. Those people were here first. We don't have tables for seven. Are we in smoking? Tension. I'll have the salad, Nikois, and some holly bread. Balance. wanted an omelet with no yolks. That's why you're just a waiter. Brunch.
Jonathan, I see what you're doing. And now let's hear Move On from Sondheim, the birthday concert, which aired as part of the PBS Great Performances series on November 24th, 2010. Are you working on something new? No. That is not like you, George. I have nothing to say. You have many things. Well, nothing that's not been said. Said by you, I do George. not know where to go. Nor did I. I want to make things that count. Things that I will be I did what new. I had to do. What am I to do? Move on. Stop worrying where you're going. Move on. If you can know where you're going, you've gone. Moving on I chosen my world was shaken So what? The choice may have been mistaken The choosing was not You have to move on Watching Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters reunite on stage for this song, watching them whisper I love you to each other after the performance is over, I mean, you have to look this up. If you're a fan of this show or these two individuals, you have to look up this performance. To determine which show we discuss next, we will need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the Random Number Generator, I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Tuna melts and lazy days. Everyone ready? Then away we go. So the subject of our next episode, which will be dropping on May 5th, that's right, I'm taking a week off, and then we're going to be focusing on the first episode of our brand new $10 a month Patreon series, Turn It Off, it's all about off-Broadway musicals. So if you want to hear us talk about Emoji Land and a slew of other off-Broadway shows, become a $10 a month patron. I'm going to tell you how to do that here in a second. But what is the, what is the subject of our next main feed episode? Well, it was a 2013 
16 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It only ran for 171 performances, so a very short run overall. Do you know what it is? Yes, it's based on a movie. Okay, do you know what? It's Bring It On. Bring It On the Musical will be our 101st subject here on The Musical Man. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Black Lives Matter organization. You can donate $1, $3, $5, or $10 a month. If you were to donate $1 a month, you would get Monday early access to all of these main feed episodes. You would get them two days earlier than everyone else. You would get a verbal shout-out each and every week. We We have a brand new $1 a month donor, that is Jack. So thank you, Jack, and thank you to everyone else here on this list. Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get, as a $1 a month donor, a patron you get bonus episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage musical Emma, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus, Documentary Now, Original Cast Album, Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, and Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. We do have a brand new $1 a month bonus episode in development right now. No firm release date for this as of right now, but we are going to record a full commentary, yes, an old school movie commentary for the Netflix musical A Week Away. That is going to be a rough experience, but I hope it is smooth in the sense that recording it is actually easy to do. I have not done, I have not done a movie commentary since I was right out of college. You did movie commentaries right out of college? I did one. I did one. I was a dork, but we're still not done yet. As a $1 a month patron. You also get season one, 12 episodes of Radio Boy, a series for which I check in with myself, and the non-musical theater songs that make me feel more like myself. You also get eight episodes of M3, The Movie Musical Man, a series for which we discuss trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. Again, there are eight episodes of that. So far, we are coming back in July with new episodes. Let's say you donate $3 a month. Well, you get everything I've already talked about, but you also get a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. You get season one, 10 episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast, and you get a special one-off episode all about season one of Netflix's Julie and the Phantoms. $5 a month will get you everything I've already described, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss on the podcast. You get to tell me what Tony-nominated musical we talk about here, as long as it was nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical, I should say. But you get to boss me around for one week is what you get to do. You also get seasons one and two, that's 24 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. It's wonderful. You get access to my Broadway and Chicago review series and Shout About It, volumes one and two. Those are collections of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shout outs from the first 50 episodes of the podcast. 
Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described. Plus, you get exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed. Those are published on our Patreon page. And you get Season 1, 12 episodes of The Snub Club, which is a special series all about Broadway musicals that were snubbed in regards to the Tony Award for Best Musical. And of course, starting April 28th, I've already talked about this, turn it off, the podcast series about off-Broadway musicals. We're going to start releasing those episodes on April 28th on a bi-weekly basis, the first episode again is all about emoji land thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast if you're listening via apple podcasts or pod chaser please take a moment to write a five-star review on both platforms we are hoping to get a total of 65 star reviews between those two platforms we currently have 41 so if you have not taken the time to write a five-star review please do so on both apple podcasts and pod chaser what happens when we get to that 65 star review goal well i'm gonna produce an episode episode all about Disney's Zombies franchise. Zombies and Zombies 2. You can stream the show via Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. I would love to hear any thoughts you have regarding this week's subject, Sunday in the Park with George. Thank you, as always, to Patty and Benny. Oh, my God. Where would I be without you? Thank you to my wonderful husband, Chris. Oh, my God. I have no idea. Chris recently said to me that he would be up a creek if if we were not together. And that is how I would describe my state of being if I did not have Chris in my life. Thank you so much to Alex Green for creating our amazing, beautiful logo. And thank you to Zach Little for creating our amazing intro and outro music. Oh, well, you know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, I'll finish in, and good night. Let us raise our glasses to another 100 episodes. Ha <laughs> Oh, and don't forget to wait until the outro music is done so you can hear the demo Lindsay recorded. This is a demo of the song I wrote with her, Joey Doesn't Eat Here Anymore. Don't forget, it's coming up right after the music. Fuck.